Well, I wish I was in the land of cotton. Old times, they are not forgotten. Look away, look away, look away, Dixieland. Country and he died first kin, and he died killing man, a most honorable sin. Oh, welcome to the Dixie Polis Podcast, where Southern men de reconstructing the South. Crappy Black History Month. <laughs> so, uh, Today we're going to talk about the big S word, slavery. Um, so as an introduction to this, we're gonna we're gonna Leroy Jenkins this. Uh, we're gonna go ahead and kind of outline where we're coming from, so we're clear on the outset what our positions are, uh, both historically and present day. Um. And then we'll kind of get into details after that. So, uh, <clears throat> Travis, you say you were going first? Uh, yeah, I can. Um, I mean, okay, so just to start this off, I'm going to sound like a Baptist preacher on a Sunday that's about to start preaching on homosexuality. <laughs> you know, I'm going to lay down a ton of qualifications. Um, in fact, I'm going to lay down more qualifications than if I was talking about the gays. Okay? Uh, first off... Just because we all think, well, I mean, I can't speak for all, just because I think that slavery is not inherently a sin doesn't mean I hate the blacks, okay? Because there's a billion other kinds of slavery, but since we're a Southern podcast, we're automatically going to be assumed that we're going to be talking about Southern slavery as it was. And we are. We 100% are. And I am going to stand up and definitively say, Right here, this is going to be the most controversial. Well, I can't say that. It's going to be one of the most controversial things you'll ever hear me say in that Southern slavery or American chattel slavery was a grace to the West African people that happened to be enslaved during during this time. Okay. Oh wait, but 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 Travis, there was there was so many bad things that happened. Yeah, but on the other hand. If they would have stayed in Africa, they were already slaves to a conquering tribe who, by the way, was not Christian. They didn't have the Christian values that the Americans majority. I mean, obviously, there's there's always bad apples mixing into the bunch, but they didn't have this Christian influence on treating humans properly, you know. But also, it's it's a great grace. Because, one, they were introduced to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And two, their lives are ten, their, their, their ancestors' lives, not their ancestors, their, uh, their descendants' lives, are 10,000 times better off in, in terms of, you know, like, comfortability and, and access to food and health care than it would be if they were never enslaved in Africa in the first place. Okay. 
So I'm going to say, I mean, I'm just going to definitively say that American slavery was a grace upon these. Well, it was God's grace, God's divine grace shed out upon these West Africans that came over here. What was was the transatlantic slave trade just an absolute horrible stinking pile of crap? Yes, yes, it was. It was absolutely abhorrent conditions. But out of all the other places that these that these people could have ended up, they ended up in a Christian nation. Okay, they didn't end up in a papist nation, such as down in the Caribbeans. Um, they didn't end up in a Muslim country. You know, they were actually treated with some level of dignity. Now, it, it might have been a lesser form of dignity than their than, than their masters, for obvious reasons. You know, they're slaves. Okay, but. You know, a lot of people want to. A lot of people want to get on the fact that, oh well, America had chattel slavery. There's multiple generations of slaves being owned by the same family, and I'm like, yes, but you're missing the fact that there was multiple generations owned by the same family because in the Caribbeans, there was no multiple generations because you just got work till you died. You know, um, so yeah, that that's absolutely a thousand times better to be born into slavery than to just be sold to a sugar plantation and die, you know, out there harvesting sugarcane. Okay, or you know, die of well, I don't. I think they're actually immune to malaria. I was going to say die of malaria, die of disease. Okay, die of dysentery, die of malnutrition. Um. But this is not me saying, just because I don't believe that this institution itself is inherently evil, just because I don't believe that it was wrong to own slaves, does not equal, like, this does not equal, in, in you know, I'm going to try to put it in a, like a logical formula, A plus B doesn't equal C, so just because I believe these two propositions doesn't mean I hate black people. And a lot of people are just like, oh, you, you think slavery was good. And I'm like, well, it wasn't like good. It was better. But I don't hate somebody because of it. Like, that's kind of dumb. But anyways, I've kind of ranted for a few minutes. So I think I want to pick up. Kind of just wandering right now. Neil, you want me to go or are you good? Well, I, I'd like to piggyback on what, what Travis just said. Uh, I agree. I agree a hundred percent. Here's the thing. Here's, here's my, here's my problem with the narrative on slavery is that everyone who is a critic of the South, I mean, a, a hateful critic, not, not a, uh, a good faith critic, but a hateful critic, they judge things hypocritically themselves. Most people don't realize um, that not everything is perfect. Uh, perfectibility is, is probably one of the biggest problems with the liberal mindset where it's, it's kind of, um, <laughs> I like to say it's Pelagian at its core because it, it upholds the sense of, uh, sinful uh, sinlessness that cannot be attained to, but yet they they act like it can be. So what they do is they project their present virtues onto the past and 
if a particular institution, say slavery, or even the church, or pretty much anything, politics, you name it, it it's they if it wasn't carried out perfectly and as with the utmost virtue that it could possibly you know reach then it's completely and utterly evil there's no nuance allowed there's no um there's no good faith research allowed to be done i mean you, you guys have seen the slanted takes on uh, southern history but any careful student of history knows that <clears throat> slavery was not a perfect institution uh, you know reading richard weaver's uh, southern tradition at bay he even talks about how a lot of the earlier generations of slave masters and, and uh, the plantations and stuff the earliest generations were largely benevolent they they their plantations were set up like small fiefdoms you know everyone had a job everyone had food Everyone had a place to sleep. Everyone had a means to clean themselves. They weren't living in squalor. They were part of the family in many inst instances. They weren't treated uh, as chattel, you know. So this whole idea that it was all chattel slavery. No, a lot of times it wasn't. Uh, but subsequent generations, of course, you know, people are born into these families. And there's this mentality that we've seen. We talk about the cycle all the time about, uh, bad people making good times, so on and so forth. Well, it's sort of the same situation in the South where you had plantation owners, their their children would grow up, uh, and you don't always know if they're going to carry on the same traditions and the same uh, benevolent treatment of their staff, you know, not just slaves, but, you know, other people who worked on their plantations. So in, in a lot of cases... You know, the, the masters were brutal. They were bad people and they were terrible and they they ran their plantations into the ground. And, you know, it's not it's not so black and white, no pun intended, as as a lot of people make it out to be. <clears throat> so that's really and the whole idea, too. And this is another thing that, that irks me is that the South slavery would not have existed in perpetuity. It was it was on its way out because of the way uh, our government or not, not government, but our culture was throughout the entire land, not just in the south, but, you know, up north and everything. Now, an argument could be made that if the south wanted to maintain their their feudal, uh, a feudal way of life, which I have no problem with, by the way, uh, I'm working class. I know where I would have been. I wouldn't have been a plantation owner. Hell, I probably wouldn't have even been a yeoman. I probably would have been a subsistence farmer renting land from a yeoman. So the other thing, so the South, like I said, a case could be made that the, the feudal way of life would have continued in the, the inherent aristocracy that we had going on down here would have continued. But that doesn't necessarily mean that slavery would have continued uh, through economic growth. Um, as uh, what's his name, Hummel, Emancipating Slavery and Slaving Free Men. Not a big fan of the book, but he does make plenty of great points about how economically speaking, slavery was on its way out. Heck, and even Jefferson Davis, you know, he made the point that if the southern states could, could secede, you know, there was a point of agreement where, you know, the south, the southern states agreed to abolish slavery. You know, if, if they could still if they could still secede, 
Um, so the thing is, I don't think slavery would have existed much, much longer than, um, you know, even if the Civil War hadn't happened, or rather the war between the states, war of northern aggression. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think slavery would have existed much longer. And the fact that the American states, even through the, the worst means possible, we were the first among European heritage to abolish slavery outright. Uh, not not just the slave trade, but we didn't have colonies on the other side of the world with slaves still in it. The British did. Um, we weren't like Spain. We weren't like the Muslims and the Arab nations, the Ottoman Empire. You know, we we got rid of slavery. And at the same time, like I said, we and it was a point that uh, Travis made. We treated our slaves. When I say we, I mean royal we, like the South. The slaves were treated even in, even in the worst conditions. They were still treated better than they were in the West Indies or East Indies, or maybe both, and in North Africa. Uh, so it's not really a fair critique to suggest that all of slavery was brutal. Everybody had everybody got whipped on the back. You know, everybody has an Uncle Tom story. You know, it's just not the way it is. And too few people make uh, take a careful reading of the history and the slave narratives, uh, and it's because they don't. I don't. I don't think they truly care about the truth. I don't know where. I don't know where it comes from. If it's if it's envy, um, if it's just it's just a some sort of hatred. I don't know. I got a blind spot for this. I really don't know why people hate us, but yet people want to talk about the South like, and they want to move here. Uh, but nobody wants to take the time to research our history, uh, especially antebellum history. So yeah, that's my, my two cent. Uh, I agree with what both of y'all have, have mentioned. Everything y'all have mentioned, I've mentioned before, and I think it's, uh, I think these are good arguments in response. I think the other aspect of this is the historical context and certain members of the South, um, uh, how they talked about slavery and um, the, the prudential way of eliminating slavery that the South would have taken um, that was basically ignored by the North. So, you know, from my side of this, uh, the, the biggest response I have is, oh, what, what, what irony it is that the, the, um, the founding fathers built a, a nation because they wanted liberty, and then they turn around and keep a group of people enslaved, right? These kinds of arguments have, have been happening since the beginning of the country. Um, and even Samuel Adams said something to the to this effect as well. Um, and I, I I don't think that it's an irony. Uh, and I don't think it's an irony because of where we got our law and where we got our ideas from. 
So I, I want to revisit a qualification that was mentioned at the beginning of Travis's, you know, uh, position on this, which is there's different kinds of slavery, right? Um, and and even you know, legally speaking, slavery is still uh, a legitimate institution in the United States. Uh, it has been, uh, even though we have a, an amendment that supposedly, quote unquote, got rid of slavery. It didn't get rid of it. It contextualized it. So if you read that amendment, it says that slavery uh, is basically outlawed except for as a punishment for a crime. Now, this was always seen as a form of slavery. The only difference between now and then is we just call it incarceration instead of slavery. But it's slavery. Um, there are people within the United States that know this. I think uh, Maricopa County is is one of these, if I'm not getting my counties mixed up. Uh, where the sheriff has a jail where the gov the the um, the residents of the jail build everything and they grow their own crops and they they wear pink clothes um, as a way of kind of shaming them um, and they have to go out they do community service that kind of thing this is in the original um, line of thought of one form of slavery that's legitimate within the, uh, not only the U.S. Constitution, but within the tradition of the West. Um, another kind of slavery that we just don't call slavery anymore is debt slavery. Um, now, we've evolved the, um, the legal interaction between slave owner and slave in debt slavery where you don't go and work on his plantation or you don't go and and go to his jail um, which previously were ways of enforcing that no uh, now you just have to uh, relinquish a certain portion of your check every week to pay your debts uh, scripture calls this slavery straight out of the gate it calls it calls debt itself a form of slavery and it's legitimate in some cases but we've created an entire economic system built around slavery essentially and it's debt slavery most of your money uh, i could i could go on on a limb here and say most of your money you give out to a bank or you give out to some type, some type of guarantor uh, or, or some kind of institution or firm, or even, unfortunately, if, if it's the case, loan sharks who own debt that you owe them. And that debt is has got interest on it. And you owe not only the debt itself, but you also owe the usury on that debt which is, um, uns it, it's unbiblical and it's, it's evil, but that's how our whole system is built now. Um, and then you have this other kind of slavery that we talk about 
we call it, you know, we, I'm using air quotes here, um, modernity calls it chattel slavery, where you have a, uh, a group of people who were bought as foreigners and their children uh, are retained as slaves into the family. And personally, I struggle with this because on one hand, uh, technically it's legitimate. On the other hand, um, I hate the idea of any man working for someone else and not having the liberty to act in accordance to how he believes he ought to act. Uh, I don't think this is any leftover libertarianism in my mind. I think this is just, I believe men ought to be free. And that gets into the practical aspect of this, um, which is, you know, as, as uh, Neil mentioned, you know, slavery was on its way out. You know, practically and prudentially speaking, it was it was going away. It was becoming an ineffectual institution, and it was being outpaced with things like the cotton gin, or you know, uh, other other forms of mechanizations like tractors and whatnot. The early form of tractors were coming in into into vogue during that time. So there were ways in which slavery was going to be untenable, and the way forward uh, had to be uh, very carefully thought thought through, because you have you have balances that need to be fulfilled. So uh, Robert E. Lee owned slaves. And uh, he inherited these slaves from, I think, his father-in-law. And he paid the debt off on the slaves before he set them free. Because the debt was owed on the slave. And he wanted to fulfill the, de the debt before he released them. And that was always his goal. He mentioned that from, you know, he did not like slavery. As soon as he inherited them, he set out a path to paying off their debt and setting them free. And that included um, sending them across the country to work because he couldn't find work in Virginia because slavery was becoming ineffectual. So, uh, but the other aspect of this is that the founding fathers spoke a very different kind of English that we speak today. And when we, for instance, read the Second Amendment and we hear that uh, the right of the people uh, to bear arms should not be infringed because a well-regulated militia is necessary for a free people. When people hear that today, they think of an organized official uh, militia that... You know, you have to uh, register yourself with the federal government or whatever. And all the militia was during that time was every fighting age man of good health in, an, in, in a community. It wasn't even something, you know, really official. It was unofficial because if you were a foreigner or a sojourner, it was in the town. It was an expectation that you would at least assist in the defense of the town. 
should the town come under attack. And so the argument that they're making there is that because, um, and, and, you know, an additional aspect of this is that this is during a time when a standing army would have been seen as abhorrent, right? The founding fathers thought that it was a great evil. The two things Thomas Jefferson thought were the biggest dangers, uh, among the two things that Thomas Jefferson thought were the biggest dangers to a, a free people was a standing army. And they spoke out against the standing army. And we didn't have a standing army until, I think, just before World War I. Um, so the language when we get into liberty, life, liberty, and, and pursuit of happiness, um, it, it always takes into consideration what Aristotle would say according to one's nature or according to their nature or according to uh, the nature of the man. And so in, in the nature of a man is not just his body and not just his genetics and not just his mindset, but also his relationship with other people. And so within the, within the mind of the founding fathers, someone could be free even though they were in chains. And that's because freedom had to do with a, a liberty of conscience and a liberty of thought and a liberty of mind where uh, the individual's uh, ability to believe, for instance, in God in certain uh, doctrinal points was within the the conscious of the of the individual, not within the 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 weight of whoever governs you. And so, it's this isn't some ad hoc or um, uh, cute way of getting around the aspect of slavery. Um, the idea of liberty being merely a, a lack of restrictions didn't come around until the Jacobins. Uh, the, the innovation and the invention is that liberty means freedom from a restriction of action. Freedom is always the ability to act without being constrained by your passions or enslaved by your passions. And the ability to see reality without opinion is the way that I, I kind of phrase it. So, um, I would, oh. yeah, I'm almost done. Sorry. Um, Very good. So the, had, owning a slave doesn't mean that that slave is not human. And this is why they uh, educated their slaves. This is why the, the primary modus of education was from the scriptures. They cared for the souls of their slaves. They wanted their slaves to be brothers in Christ with them. And so uh, most of your, uh, it was, I, I think de Tocqueville acknowledged this, but, you know, there, it was not uncommon for a black man who was owned by a white farmer to be armed in defense of the home while the master of the home was away. It was not uncommon for the black slave to be educated in the South. These uh, restrictions against arming and educating the slaves didn't come about until the Haitian Rebellion. And then the, um, uh, the John Brown Revolt. So the, 
a lot of the restrictions and a lot of the quote unquote dehumanization of blacks came about as a result in response to a lot of the abolitionist sable rattling that happened, you know, going all the way back to the 1840s and 1830s. Uh, they weren't just done out of the blue because, oh, I hate the black man. It was done because they didn't want people coming in and inciting people who were essentially part of their family into revolting and killing them. And, you know, frankly, the Haitian revolt scared the piss out of them. So, um, it, it was a, it was a tight situation for slave owners. It was a tight situation for slaves. Uh, the Yankees were no better about black people when it comes to being kind or, 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 uh, actually they were worse. I, I take that back. They were much worse in how they treated the black man. So, um, I, I don't really know where to end my train of thought here, but I've got a perfect quote to end that. Yeah, go ahead. All right. So when you, when you said I was going to go in a different direction, uh, but what you said right there, I want to quote from St. R.L. Dabney and, uh, this is from, um, defense of Virginia and through her, the South. Um, it appears that Abraham, the friend of God, and Isaac, the most holy and spotless of the patriarchs, were great slaveholders. But before pursuing the argument further, it may be prudent to remove the quibble that these servants were not slaves in the sense of our African slaves, but only humble clansmen, retainers, or hirelings. At least one writer would prove this by the fact that Abraham did not fear to arm 318 of them. For had they been real slaves, says he, they would not have continued so one day after getting arms in their hands the retort most appropriate would be that abraham was not afraid to arm his slaves and and we can also read into this education educate his slaves though actual slaves because there was no saucy meddling yankee abolitionist in those days to preach insubordination and make ill blood between master and servants <laughs> i love I love that last paragraph. Like he, he, he just puts the knife in and just twists. He's like, yeah, we would educate them, but you know, you're going to come down here and subvert them. Um, yeah. But and, yeah. and that's, that's kind of the whole point though. Right. The, the whole point here is that, uh, the, the abolitionist was dead set on creating conflict between the blacks and the whites in the South. And they exacerbated this during Reconstruction um, by just bringing in, bringing all the all the blacks from uh, you know the many of the major metropolitan areas and just dropping them off in the South and saying, "You guys figure it out, right?" And so now the 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 black population kind of settled amongst themselves, and so a lot of the the blacks down here today. Are descendants both from the northern blacks that were just dropped off and the southern blacks that were here for a while, and so you have mixed sentiments when it comes to these 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 topics uh, with blacks even in the south. Um, well, one of the things that how, how you know Yankees would would treat the blacks versus the uh, the slaveholders is is um, when they finally started migrating west, you know, and they're like, oh, I don't know, let's just pick Kansas. Uh, Kansas literally 
went up in arms. Like it, it went, it exploded overnight because these white farmers started seeing black people move into the territory or into the state. And, um, they, they, they just weren't going to have it. They're like, no, no, no. So while Kansas, you know, likes to parade around as being, Oh, we're free state, you know, free state. We've never had slavery. I'm like, yeah, but what y'all have done is so much worse. I, I want to say it's, is it the Kansas revolt, Kansas riot? I can't remember. Um, uh, I don't think it's bleeding Kansas. That's something completely different, but, uh, but yeah, like, Kansas literally got violent and they just started lynching black people and throwing them out. Um, didn't have that down here. Um, I mean, yeah, a after the war, during Reconstruction, when the freed blacks and, and even the, the northern blacks had started to come down here and, you know, to vote Republican, um, they, they, were, they were causing an uproar. And so obviously there was, there was a time of strife right there between the, the white population and the black population. But that's totally different than saying, oh, oh, there's a colored man over there. He's farming his field. And they're just totally losing their shit over it, you know? Um, so totally di two, two totally different scenarios. But, um, I mean, so I want to I hit back on the um, – I can't remember exactly how you said it, but uh, it, it was it was talking about how, how there was a working towards becoming free type thing, you know. Um, and, and I th I think Dabney even kind of recognizes. So I'm not going to pull out any quotes or anything like that, but um, it whenever I, okay. So another thing I want to point out and kind of tie it into whenever I say that slavery was a grace to the West African population is because you you have this this encultured group of people, these people that, you know, had this higher level of technology, uh, had this higher way of living. You know, they, they've been Christianized for, you know, I think at that time, what, uh, let's just go ahead and round up, 1,800 years. Okay, so the message of Christ has been spreading through this particular group of people and, and and because they're christian they're beginning to be see the blessings of god bestowed upon them they're uh, i'll use the word because i think it's appropriate but i'm kind of hesitating to use the word they're evolving i guess you could say uh they're evolving to uh, into a christian society and then you're taking these essentially tribesmen uh some of these tribes even even today in some of these tribes have never invented the wheel um you bring them over and they live side by side in a freer context well they're they're gonna flip out uh dabney mentioned specifically uh the red man in firewater let's see um da -da -da -da. i'm not gonna pull it oh it's back here um Yeah, I'm not going to pull it up right now, but uh, but it's, but essentially he's talking about you know we we introduce whiskey to the redskin, or excuse me, we in introduce whiskey to the Native American, and um, they they can't handle their whiskey, so they essentially become drunks. Uh, we, we can still see the effects today on a lot of reservations. How you know they'll still blame the U.S. government, but no one's forcing them today to live on reservations. Okay, no one's forcing them to have crappy schools. You know, no one's forcing them to live in abject poverty, but they still are. 
Um, and most of them are still alcoholics to this day. And it's because they were not, they were just like cast, you know, they, they were over here doing their own thing. And then all of a sudden, boom, there's these people that are a thousand years ahead of them, uh, technologically speaking, culturally speaking, and they, they didn't have time to adjust. So while, while I think they're, you know, I, I agree with a lot of your sentiment that there should have been a way, an easier way. And I think they're, I think, think the bar was set fairly low I, I don't think that a lot of um i think i think it you know people are making a mountain out of a molehill in a lot of this but an easier way for them to become free men um and essentially turning them loose kind, kind of kind of in the same way just on a on a grander scale on how we release children when they're old enough to take care of themselves out into society you know um if we look at them like that, that they're, they're essentially culturally children. They're culturally in, in you know, adolescence space or not adolescence, but, um, infancy. Okay. And then you have to bring them up. You have to, uh, I think a word we used in previous podcasts was culturize them. You know, we're, we're lifting, we're elevating this group of people to be on the same scale. And it would have worked. Like, because I think we got so flipping close, but, but, but then the Yankee came down and just wanted to screw everything up. And then we were trying again with, with, um, segregated South and they had, they were, they were doing really well for themselves. They had their own areas of the city that they could, that they had, they took care of it. They had their own economy. You know, there was a, there was a blending in the aspects, but there was still very sharp distinctions. And then, oh, 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 communist sympathizers came down and screwed everything up again. So now we now we have to live in that aftermath. Um, it, it, a lot of it could have been much better just given more time. Know what I mean? Because the same people that were fighting for integration are the same communist scum that were the abolitionists. You know, like most people don't point this out that, oh, the abolitionists, they were just good Puritan Christians. No, they were proto commies. They were literally Jacobins. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I, I think it was. Oh, go ahead, Neil. I'd like to piggyback on that, too. You know, <clears throat> nullification by uh, Tom Woods. I'm not, I'm not a fan of Tom Woods, but his earlier work, especially this one, is pretty good. <coughs> he. He cites in-depth instances where up in New England, the abolitionists threatened secession over the abolition of slavery. Now, they were able to come to, to terms like, uh, man, I, I can't remember the name of the, the act that was passed. Oh, geez. I'll have to look it up, but I'm sure someone else can figure it out. But those states that threatened secession were placated by the government who then followed up and said, okay, we'll abolish slavery. Now, again, this goes back to what I was saying earlier with the bias against the South. New England isn't, a, a, isn't, it's not the South. Like, you know, our, our listeners will understand what I mean by that. New England is New England. It's, it's by comparison, it's really no comparison. Like I would never want to live in New England ever. I don't care how beautiful the scant countryside is. It doesn't beat the South by any stretch of the imagination. 
that being said, I guess I can understand some of the envy in that regard. But the fact that they were able to they they decided to placate these radicals who were willing to secede, who were probably willing to do violence. I'm pretty sure there's instances where they did commit violence to get their way <coughs> um, to that end to abolish slavery. And so, you know, it just goes to show, you know, that that bias early on, because that was like long before the Civil War ever broke out. But I mean, that, that was the stated reason why John Brown did his thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So it's he, like he it's so one sided. It, it's so one sided. Like the southern states, they even said we even said we'll, we'll even get rid of slavery. It's no big deal. I mean, the first states, the first four states to secede didn't even cite slavery as their reason, as their rationale. They wanted to secede because they they felt like they were being overruled by Washington D.C. had every right to, per the Constitution. That's what Tom Woods' book is all about: the nullification. They threatened secession and, and then got their way, right? But that that courtesy wasn't extended to the South. And the crazier thing is, slavery continued in Northern states even after the Emancipation Proclamation. You know, it was never it was. The whole idea that the Civil War was even about slavery, that is just that is a narrative that's been run into the ground and disproven or disproved on so many occasions. It's it's funny that it even still exists, but that myth has to exist in order to continue the narrative, in order to continue the the, the envy and the resentment and the push for atonement and perpetuity. You know, right. So what I was gonna mention earlier, um, Jeff Davis uh in his in one of his speeches in Congress, made mention of how it took a thousand years of slavery to civilize the German. It's going to offend a lot of people because there's some German appreciators in our 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 uh, audience. But um, he says it took a thousand years to civilize the German. And he likened that period of time to what was happening with the American black slave. And it's always with this mindset. I I can't think, I mean, there were a few, but I can't think of any major, uh, I can't think of any major group who's, whose sentiment was not at some point that the blacks should be free. Right. This is the, the whole, the whole sentiment that, you know, there should be a working towards Liberty. It was present in the mind of the people, even upon the founding of the, of the original 13 States and into the South. Um, now, you can you can argue as to the speed of that, but this comes down to a prudential argument, and if you get into that kind of argument, all you're doing is speculating because you don't live during those times. All you're doing is looking back with hindsight, and you're going to nitpick how they could have acted in a different way using a modern mind and modern presuppositions, which doesn't really work. Um... The, the, the point I'm making here is uh, you know, that this bias against the South is that, that, that Neil's talking about. 
is the primary issue. My state, Mississippi, mentions slavery in their secession document. And it says our whole cause is within the institution of slavery. Hands down. And of course, all the all the libs are jumping up and down and, and screaming and you know, doing their monkey thing. But then when you keep reading, it says because the Yankee takes no care as to the actual health and well-being of the black man. And they just want to enforce equality between the, the whites and the blacks without thinking about the ramifications of it. And so, yes, it was wrapped up in slavery. Yes, the main point was slavery. But the main point of slavery was you've got a bunch of abolitionists who want to come in and they don't care about the consequences of their actions. All they care about is this supposedly all-encompassing moral principle, right? This is why, uh, you know, when it when it comes to, you know, the the issue over child murder in the United States, I will I don't I would hold a lot of the same positions as an abolitionist abortion abolitionist, but I refuse to use the title. Uh, number one, because H.A. is something of a cult in some ways. And if you don't make the primary thing you talk about all the time, uh, abortion, then, you know, you're somehow not going to heaven. Um, but on the other hand, it's because the abolitionists were radical Anabaptists and they weren't people to emulate. They were kicked out of every country. Their, their tradition was kicked out of every country because they were revolutionaries and and, and and violent usurpers. They should have been oppressed. And the big mistake that we made over here is that we let them in. And we should have never let them in. Or if we let them in, we should have kept them from having any kind of power. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. Um, but that, that needs to be recognized as part of one of the cultural influences of abolitionism. And... The, the modern abortion abolitionists take on that, that, that title with all of the implications that come with that. Um, and so I, I would recommend avoiding it just because of that. Uh, that's kind of an aside, but, um, you know, I, I, the slavery as an institution, you know, again, we find it in scripture. There's a Dabney quote about that. Um, but, it's not evil in and of itself, even though it's not to be desired, right? It's a it's a it's a prudential issue, is what the South was dealing with. Sorry, that was a little bit of a rant, but I had to step away. I had a sound like I heard a buffalo running through my house. I had to get out there and whoop some tail. Damn, bro. <laughs> well, I mean, one of the things I can liken this to, um, get getting back in the whole culturization thing. So I had to I cut out from like the half part of your, uh, what you were saying. Uh, so I apologize. But, um, 
you know, sticking two different cultures side by side and forcing them to live together. I mean, I say forcing them to live together. You know, no one's forcing them to cross the flipping border. But anyways, is is what's happening right now with all the immigration right now um, and how we're going to see that it, it's going to destroy our country unless we flip and do something like it's already flipping destroying it. So, I mean, I'm not I'm not saying we should, you know, round up all the all the Latins and enslave them. But at the same time, like there, there is no like I'd be uh, happy probably, with deportation. I mean, yeah, 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 absolutely. Put them in UPS boxes and just ship them back. Ship them back. Flat rate shipping, man. Uh, put about four of them in a box. Uh, <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> but I mean, so we can kind of see, we, we can see the effects of, of people straight out of a South American jungle coming up in here and, and working. But imagine... In, in in the reverse order, like let, let's, I'm thinking more along the lines of how how America's being justified on it. And uh, Dabney brings this up. I'm not gonna look at it. I kind of wish I would have read it uh, again and took notes and done some stuff. I didn't really have time to read the whole book again uh, before the podcast. But uh, from memory, I, I'm seeming to recall that Virginia did not want slavery when it was forced upon her shores, like the state did not, well, uh, the colony did not want slavery, but it was forced upon them by England. And so they were kind of, well, what are we, what are we going to do now? Uh, type situation. And so the justification of why it started happening was what else are we going to do with these people? You know, uh, it, it wasn't particularly advantageous to the landowner to have all these slaves. Um, yeah, eventually it did, you know, turn a profit. I mean, but at the same time, it's like, crap, you know, and now I've got to train these people straight out of, you know, West Africa that's never grown cotton before, never grown tobacco, never even seen cotton or tobacco probably how to do all this manual labor. But the other option is, is they would just be basically thrown overboard. Like they're not going to take cargo back to Africa. Um, and I mean, they, then this kind of gets into the evils of the whole transatlantic slave trade. Right. I, and I know Which my entire shut down, by the way. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, we did. Uh, now a lot of people are like, but there were still auctions. I'm like, yeah, because you could flip and still sell, buy and sell slaves. You just couldn't ship any new product in. And I'm using I'm using the term product very literally uh, because um, that, that's essentially, you know, their, their labor was a product. Um, and, and if you really want to get down to it, you know, this is kind of totally aside a right here. Uh, Reagan instituted the most recent form of slavery we have today, and that's cheap labor, you know. Because um, that—that's—that's that's essentially how it all started. Was it was cheap labor for, you know, working the fields in the South. Well, now it's cheap labor to put a roof and roof, uh, re-roof your house, and cheap labor to wall up your house. Because oh, well, we we could pay the white people, you know, seventeen bucks an hour 
to roof your house. Or we could pay the Browns $100 for six of them and roof your house. I mean, so, I mean, but anyways, that kind of gets off into the weeds here. But at the same time, yeah, uh, we wanted cheap labor to work the fields. So, um, I can't remember who it was, but I remember seeing it back in my libertarian days. And it said, if slavery, if Southern slavery was the drug, Africa was the drug dealer. Um, so who, who are we blaming for the, for the opioid epidemic? Oh, we're going to blame the, the drug pushers. We're going to blame the pharmaceutical companies. So who should we really blame for the slave trade uh, besides the Jews? Um, <laughs> uh, so there's a, there's a recent movie that came out about this tribe of Africans. And it's got... Uh, the lady who who plays in all those DC movies um, in it, the black lady. I can't remember her name off the top of my head. Um, uh, and, and it's, uh, I think it was something called the Woman King or something like that. Yeah, it was the Woman King. So this, this movie, the Woman King, um, that they they paint uh, the 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 African tribesmen as this you know heroic uh, uh, indigenous people that are fighting back against the colonial oppressors. This movie is about the tribe of black Africans who were the main exporters of black slaves from Africa. There are plenty of African tribes, and I mean this, that like have had epic stands against uh, the Muslims or against other tribes. Uh, they had, you know, relatively speaking, honorable kings. Uh, the Iroquois Nation, I think, is a good example of Native American tribes. Uh, out of all of the Native American tribes, I think the Iroquois Nation is... Uh, one of the most respectable. Um, but that Hollywood, whenever they make uh, shows, they want to like uh, uh, somehow uh, uh, make you like, for instance, the Comanche, which was the, the American continent's version of Genghis Khan. Right? That that would come in and literally kill man, woman, and child if you didn't just submit to them. It was so bad. We all know how bad the Spanish were. It was so bad that the other native tribes were going to the Spanish for help against the Comanches. They wouldn't ask the people who were taking over and who were turning them into Roman Catholics for help against the Comanche because the Comanches were that bad. And so, like... It, it, if, if nothing else convinces you that you should believe the opposite of what modernity tells you, this should convince you of that. Because they pick all of the, the worst of the worst, and the only reason why this movie got made was because they were black. That's it. And they fought colonial powers. That's it. Most of these honorable tribes, when the white men showed up over there, a lot of them integrated. A lot of them uh, conform to Western ideals. 
because they saw the value of it. But they would be seen as race traders. That's why they'll never get a movie. Um, same thing uh, with the Iroquois. Uh, isn't the movie that you're talking about um, the African Queen or not? Not African Queen. That's that. Uh, it's the Woman King. It's got Viola Davis in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where, where basically they like ginger swap Mahomie. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. They, they ginger swapped it too. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot yeah, to Ma- mention that, but. Yeah, Mahomey, like this great, you know, is literally his empire is built on slavery. And, <laughs> oh, sh- you know, she's going to go out there in Wakanda forever, this crap. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Their <laughs> Wakanda is literally the slave capital of, of Western Africa at that time. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. And, and I mean, a lot. There, there's this narrative that, that a lot of people think that it's a, just a bunch of honkies. Like, imagine, you know, um, um, English English safari guys with that little, like, safari hat on and, you know, thigh-high boots with high knee-high white socks, tramping through the jungle with a flipping net trying to catch black people. Like, that's the image, you know, particularly public schools want you to get on how, how we acquired our slaves. When in fact it was like we just went to the Walmart in Africa and bought them, you know. You know? I, just, <laughs> I I just wanna I just wanna like while we're on this topic, think about this: the posh the posh Englishman in his knee high socks and his tall boots, trouncing around the, the African jungle, capturing native Africans, the Negro, with a net. That that image is hysterical to me. Yeah, uh, be, because number one, it it undercuts the the actual effectiveness of the English army and uh, how good they were at col- uh, colonialism. Um, but it also this whole idea that the most of these most of these uh, in quote unquote indigenous people were just these angels living this uh, completely holistic life, 100% in tune with nature, and all of a sudden the white man comes in and disrupts all of goodness and truth and beauty by expecting them to you know, not eat actual animal feces and to, to take baths and to learn how to read and write. Um, it, it's, just, it's, it's such a comical reversal of what history actually was. Sorry, I had to opine there for a moment on that. Yeah, I mean, if you just take it, mean, a lot of these claims, if you just take them at face value, like, uh, oh, the, the slave owner hated the slave, hated black people. I'm like, why the flip was he around so many of them? You know? If he like, hated I mean, them, why did he try to get them saved? That's the yeah. thing, like, I, I, I don't, oh, oh, they weren't human because they couldn't vote. Why did he try to save their soul? Genuine question, my brother in Christ. Like, think about that for a moment. You're trying to save someone. You're trying to. It, when's the last time that somebody tried to save the soul of a dog, or a cow, or a horse? Right. It, they're not preaching the gospel to horses. They don't think that black people are animals. Right. There's a uh, there, there's a cultural language that was used talking about how they live like animals, but it's because they did. <laughs> Like uh, the 
you know, the, the other aspect about this whole slavery thing that, that gets lost in the shuffle, a lot of these slaves were like four or five generations away from their ancestors going out and catching albinos and using their organs for potions, right? And, and you think, oh, well, after four or five generations, that should have been out of their system. Well, go look at New Orleans and go look at the voodoo culture. That's where that comes from. That's where voodoo comes from. It's an amalgamation of witch doctor nonsense and demonic worship and Roman Catholicism. So it was a legitimate concern because it was still around. And that stuff does need to be suppressed. That stuff shouldn't be allowed in your culture. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because one of the arguments that, um, uh, oh, what, what's that dude's name? Um, Abram X, Abram X Kendi, whatever, whatever the flip his name is, nobody cares. He'll be forgotten in a generation. Um, <laughs> one of the things that he always likes to point out is like, oh, well, black, or, you know, people like him, oh, well, black people were, they were stripped of their culture. It's like, yeah, because your culture is freaking evil. Right. You know? Uh, we you know, I would say that, you know, they're not even, you know, the ones that originally came over here weren't even a generation removed from cannibalism, you know, um, they had bones in their nose, that type of crap. Right. Yeah. But I mean, we're, we're, we're essentially saying the same thing right now. Um, but yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. Neil, you got any input on any of this? Well, not on that specifically. Sorry, I was reading something in the... I'm still reading Weaver, so... (laughs) One thing I got to thinking about, though, was what I was saying earlier with... uh, with the uh, the feudalist aspects of the South. I kind of want to go back to what I was saying with regards to how slavery... Here's the way it works in, in a feudal system. Once a benevolent leader or leaders in this case, there was no King in the South, right? So your, your plantation owners were essentially Kings in in their own way. Um, but if you look at broader history, those kingdoms that were most prosperous, who had a benevolent King who sought virtue in, in Christianity, you don't see slavery. You see serfdom, but that's become like a, a, a cuss word to people, right? They don't mind working 55 hour weeks, struggling to get by uh, the decline of the value of the dollar and scratching to get by and going to debt and you know marriage is struggle. They don't mind all that. But if you start talking about being taken care of by a king or some benevolent leader who assures your shelter, your home, your food, your health and work then it becomes faux pas you know it's this it's this evil uh malicious malevolent thing and the problem is like i was just saying slavery was on its way out i I don't necessarily agree with homo on his emancipating slavery enslaving free men that it was he, he looks at it from a purely economic perspective as though the south was this this uh, bastion of capitalism or whatever. Um, but that's not what it was. It, it, in a sense, I guess you could say wealth had grown in the South to such an extent that the necessity for chattel slavery 
quote unquote necess necessity pretty much dissipated. So when the sla the, the transatlantic slave trade ended, you know, slaves, subsequent slaves were homegrown, so to speak, which means they were allowed to have family units. So a husband and wife, slave, married, has they have kids. Those kids are in, for lack of a better term, raised in captivity, I guess you could say. But they weren't being raised in cages. They weren't being, you know, shocked with uh, or hit with cattle prods and, and stuff like that. But, I mean, of course, that's the narrative. But the fear is, for some people, I think, or at least the more enlightened uh, critics of the South, is that if if America were to descend into that sort of aristocratic or feudal system, at least this is their narrative, or, or a narrative that could be crafted, hypothetically, would be that those on the lowest rungs of society would end up falling into slavery. Now, yes, in an impoverished kingdom, you're in, in a king that's not very benevolent and the situation is dire, you probably will have slaves. But being a slave who still has shelter, who still has food, still has subsistence is being better than being is better than being homeless. And we see this after emancipation. Blacks move to the north in, in mass numbers. They can't find jobs because the north and the Midwest are radically more racist than the south. Southerners had learned to live with black people for generations. <coughs> they can't find jobs. They're homeless or they're working in conditions that are far worse than the slavery that they came from. And I know people like to point back, what about Jim Crow? Well, what about it? Black laws existed up north before Jim Crow ever was thought of. And they were far worse. Like I said, that's what resulted in mass black homelessness. That's what resulted in get the construction of ghettos and the mass violence in these areas. Now, I guess an argument could be made that after black laws were abolished and Jim Crow was abolished, black family units started to reform and started getting better. And it really did start getting better. Despite all the, the discrimination and, and, and racial bias and all that was going on at the time, people don't understand it's all connected. There's a lot of, there was a lot of resentment towards black people because of reconstruction. It, it wasn't organic. It was, it was, Again, you know, just as resentment in the North against the South existed, well, that resentment was returned in kind. And so black people in the South were, were, were sure, they were mistreated and they were, they were still poor. But that, I think that was more of a result of Reconstruction than it was a simple, you know, a simple explanation of, all oh, Southerners are just racist and so they didn't give black people a leg up. Well, guess what? It's no different in many urban areas especially up north. And so with um, with with family units, black family units getting stronger, then you have the civil rights era starting. You have Lyndon Bain Johnson and and Republicans, Democrats working together uh, to fight uh, what they call it, fighting poverty or whatever. Um, and what happened? Well, the Black family, poverty. Yeah, black the black family structure fell apart again. There was an incentive for black women not to be married. And you know, Thomas Sowell even cites this in, in a couple of his works, 
that black women would actually hide their 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 children's father so the social worker would think that the father wasn't in the home so they could receive more money because there was an incentive for that and that incentive persists today like i i know somebody right now who only recently got married who has two kids and for the longest time her ex-fiance they didn't get married because and this is a white woman they didn't get married because she got a larger tax break and more benefits from the state for being single and raising two children, despite the fact that she lived with her fiance, they weren't even married. And at this, you know, at this point and at this day and age, social workers don't need to come around to see if there's uh, a male breadwinner in the house. It doesn't matter. If a woman just puts on paper that she's single and raising kids on her own and claims them as dependents. Well, then she gets all the extra cheddar. Well, this is where it comes from. Okay. And, and all it, 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 it it corrupted the black family. And that's why you see single fatherhood uh, in, in the black community, which, you know, with single father or with uh, not single, my goodness, um, single motherhood, I mean, and no fathers, fatherlessness. And with fatherlessness comes a bad upbringing. Bad upbringing means criminal behavior. Criminal behavior means violence and arrest and contributing to the FBI statistics that people scoff at when you when you when you bring it up there's so many percentage of people in the society commit the majority of the, the crimes now it's not it's not a myth that the ADL and Southern Poverty Law Center all these guys want to cite this as a myth but it's not I mean the FBI statistics are there when you look at the the crime statistics and this is a small proportion of society but th these are a group of people that have been kicked around back and forth and through demagoguery, politicians, especially, especially at first it was the Republicans, you know, and then it, now it's the Democrats who appeal to their, they appeal to their resentment, they appeal to their station in life, and they don't, they don't echo Booker T. Washington, they echo W.E.B. Du Bois, whose sole message was one of resentment. You know, Du Bois, Malcolm X, I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not condoning everything from Malcolm X or whatever, but <coughs> he insisted on an organic segregation, essentially. Like black people should build their own communities. They should build up their families. And that's, that's good. Booker T. Washington, you know, emphasized that people should, black people should work hard, you know, despite, despite the odds, they should fight against the odds that, that, the obstacle is the way, as, as Marcus Aurelius would say, like the more resistance you have in life, yes, the harder it's going to be, but you're a better person on the backside. Now you're getting people who you get, you get single black, single women raising kids on their own. They're not learning morals and virtues because the mom is working the kids at school all day with a bunch of other kids who don't have dads. And so they band together because they have to have some sort of male leadership in their, in their, in their, group and so you get gangs you get you, you get you get a very skewed idea these kids get a very skewed idea of what life is supposed to be like and this is all they end up knowing they don't know what it's like to have a father and you know it's it's funny to me because people will the, the same people who criticize the south will look back on on those subsequent slave owners like i was talking about earlier who who mistreated their slaves they ripped families apart you know 
you know, the children would go here, the wife would go here, the husband would go here, and then they never see each other again for the rest of their lives. Well, how's that any worse than what's going on now with the, the, the war on poverty, right? How's that any better? So, the, I mean, their quality of life, I'd argue, you know, per capita isn't much better. It isn't much better than it was in the antebellum era. Even with even with the malevolent slave owners, it's not much better. <clears throat> so yeah. So I was gonna uh, I was gonna mention this. The you know, first off the the whole um, oh they're black they look different than us therefore we I guess we have to enslave them. Um, that mindset because that's that's literally what people think happened. Um. It's it's the same thing with the like the Jews. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, for no reason whatsoever. Um, it, it's as if there isn't something in the way that they act. I'm I'm singling that out because I don't think that this is a uh, this is this is some of my rejection of of Kenism, and this is my absolute rejection of like neo Nazism and a lot of the racialism that goes on today. I, I don't believe that it's merely their genetics that are the problem. I think that when you're, when you're steeped in a mode of being for so long, that genetics uh, tends to lend itself towards what you're already doing. I think genetics modifies itself over time. But, um, I, I, I genuinely believe that just like the German changed from being nomadic tribes to being clerks, because that's o over the course of you know 700 years, they went from being a bunch of warring tribes to being a bunch of clerks and clergymen and bean counters. Um, the origins of modern banking uh, come through the... Um, uh, the Medici family and the Medici family got the, their modus operandi from the Templars. The Templars were uh, French and, you know, the French are basically Germans, uh, just Anglicized, not Anglicized, um, Latinized Germans. So, it, it it's there's reasons behind why slaves were kept. And one of the tensions that was talked about by Davis, by people like Forrest, um, and even you know Lee had mentioned this, I think, in in one of his letters. What do you do with a population that's unable to take care of themselves in a civilized society? And yet you can't cast them out because they've already been, I know Neil and I, uh, you and I, you've talked to, you and I have talked about this at length, but you know, the, the American black slave at the time during the, the era of the civil war, the, the early 1800s, they were already deracinated. If you send them back, they don't have a home over there. What do you do? The answer that, the southern slave owners had who did have an interest in freeing the slave was that they should be enculturated 
as Travis said, and they should earn their liberty. And this is this would be a, a much more humane version of what the 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 uh, uh, the Romans did, where you're not being put into you know I, I know everybody thinks Django Unchained is history, but they weren't being put into um, you know arenas. They weren't being forced to fight one another to the death. That's just stupid. Uh, from an economic standpoint, that's stupid. But the Southern mind had an affinity for Christian ethics and you treat your slave as another human being. They weren't beat because they were black. They weren't beat because you know they thought they were just ignorant souls. In fact, more often than not, they treat them like children. And you can find that, you know, insulting or whatever else, but you don't, you're not going to go beat the child because he's a child. Right. There were right. things like floggings, but flogging was used for white people. Flogging was used for people who were lazy. It didn't matter if they were white or black. A whole lot of white people had the same scars as black slaves had because they were lazy and they didn't fulfill their commitments. So whipping was used as a form of punishment for thousands of years because you can whip a guy and put him back to work because he's responsible for paying you. Or, or he's responsible to to you for some kind of work. Right. Um, so it, it's like all of the the instances that they they throw out there as these grand evils of the American South, and the evil that still haunts America to this day. Um, it, it it really is them taking all of these particular instances. It's the same like the same black slave that you see every time that slavery's mentioned, and he's got all of those scars on his back, right? Uh, he had incited violence several times, and that's why he got whipped. Mind you, he incited violence, and he didn't get shot. He got whipped, right? He had, he had beat up um, uh, uh, what do they call him? The, uh, he, had, he had beat up the taskmaster. Yeah. And yeah. He had he had beaten up, you know, some some of his uh, his owner's family, and as a response, he got whipped. You would do that for people who come beat up your family. You'd put them in jail. That's another form of slavery. You'd enslave a free man today for beating up your family, right? So it's it's not this grand evil everybody makes it out to be. I was going to say. <laughs> you made the point about how they're they're treated like children. I think that's I think it's funny. Uh, another another narrative that's used against the South is the myth of the paternal slave master. Like they weren't like the slave masters weren't ever paternal. Like like a father would take care of their children. Truth is, they were not all of them. Obviously, the institution wasn't perfect. Again, the myth of perfectibility. But on that same note these people treat black people no differently there's a paternalistic there's a paternal especially with the war on poverty it's still a very paternalistic relationship except the difference is the parents in this situation are dysfunctional they're terrible parents because how do they how do they placate their children you know just like a typical bad parent that you see today 
You know, the children are kicking and screaming. They give them whatever they want. They give them whatever they want so they can get their way, right? Well, that's how the relationship is now with the war on poverty and how progressives treat black people. And the other thing is, too, you know, I don't have the copy with me right now, but Age of Entitlement, Christopher Caldwell's book, there's a, there's a, there's a quote in there from a, a Harvard professor, Jamaican, raised and born, who, whose emphasis was on slavery and, or black history or whatever, made the point. And this is by design. They act like, so they act like, um, they act like it's bad that black people were were uprooted and brought over here. Now, this I'm talking about critics of the South and critics of slavery. They cite the race and nation as as a terrible, horrible thing. But that's precisely what they want. And and this this Harvard prof even says this explicitly. It's all by design. They're meant to be deracinated. They're meant to not have roots. They're meant to not have a, uh, a static culture or a lasting culture or anything that they can build upon because that makes them more malleable, easy to manipulate. And uh, what was I going to say? That gum, man, I can't think for nothing tonight. Um, <coughs> oh, so yeah, this kind of goes back to the absence of the father in the household. Well, how do you keep someone in perpetual deracination? You get rid of the father. Because if you get rid of the father, you can't establish a family unit that lasts in perpetuity. Right? So you, you got you got lineage. You got uh women sleeping around having having children with multiple men, men having children with multiple women, there's no stable family, there's no roots, all the kids have different last names. It, they've been completely deracinated, but in the worst way possible now. Before, even though they were brought over here as slaves, like I said, the families were kept together. People were not, obviously not in all cases, but families were kept together. Kids were raised in captivity. Yeah. So what? So what? I mean, how is that, how is that worse than their situation now? Again, getting back to, you know, the homelessness, the the crime, the violence against against each other, like they're their biggest murderers, right? I mean, the number of black people killed by black people. I think I looked. I don't remember. I looked at the numbers a while back. In one year, is more than the total amount of slave owners who ever killed slaves, or something like that. I, You'll have, to, you'll have to fact check me, audience. I could be wrong about that. Or, there was some metric that I saw that was so that was so skewed towards that in, in that direction. I was I was I was kind of my mind was blown. But again, I, I wasn't really prepared for this <laughs> for this podcast tonight. <coughs> but you get my you get my point. There, these people speak out of two sides of their mouth. Oh, it's so bad. These people are uprooted and they brought over here and they're kept in bondage and slavery. So, you know what we're going to do? We're going to continue to keep them deracinated and keep them in bondage and slavery through entitlements. We're going to keep them impoverished. We're going to keep them under the yoke of resentment. And so whenever we need them to vote a certain way to keep us in power, because that's what, that's what demagogues do. This is why I hate, I hate Republicanism or what do you want to call our type of government? I hate representative republics. I'm a monarchist. So sue me. 
I don't believe it's okay to have people running for political office when all they got to do is find a group of people that they can use the oppressed oppressor paradigm with, preach to them, tell them they're oppressed, tell them they're being, they're being held down by the by these other groups of people, right, and promise them entitlements, and then boom, you, you got, well, I mean, hell, Lyndon Johnson, I, I'm not going to say the quote because I don't want to show to get taken down, but he said he'd had these blanks voting Democrat for the next hundred years. Well, guess what? It worked. It worked. They're being told, they're being sold a bill of goods. They're, they're being told that, oh, the government wants to help you. We're going to get you out of poverty. We're going to, you know, you're going to, you're going to have a good life. But at the same time, they do everything that they can to keep them in poverty and to keep them from having a good life. And these are the same people who will always point back. And, and it doesn't work, right? It doesn't work. And what do they do? They point back. Well, they blame slavery. They blame, well, look at, look at the South. They had Jim Crow. Look at the South. They had slavery. Look at the South. They uprooted these, these Africans and brought them over to America. They, they failed to mention the fact that the West African kingdoms, notably uh, Ghana, I want to say, uh, they made their billions on slavery. Well, in, in relative terms today, financially speaking. That, that that monarchy that, that exists there exists in perpetuity because have they, they enslave their enemies and ship them to America. That wasn't Spain's fault. That wasn't England's fault. That wasn't the Moors' fault. That wasn't the Ottoman Empire's fault. These people had to get rid of their enemies, and what did they do? They sold them into slavery. And now it's a narrative being now they even they even blame Europe. Well, they shouldn't have bought the slaves. We should have sold them. You know, your entire continent is war-torn still to this day. To this day, it's 2024. It's 2024. And anytime a European nation has tried to colonize Africa, they get kicked out on the basis of oppression. Well, look at Belgium. Or, or not Belgium. Uh, the Congo. Split into two countries now. The, the Belgian were kicked out. All those beautiful buildings, all those bustling cities have jungle growing all over them again. The same thing is going to happen to South Africa after they mass murder and genocide all this, all the uh, the the white Af- the South South Africans. Once that's all said and done, the same thing is going to happen to South Africa. Same thing happened in Zimbabwe, Rhodesia. Yeah, I was about to I was about to correct you there. It's Rhodesia. And, and what's happening now is guess who's colonizing Africa without even really trying who's bought up the economies of several countries, that they're in debt to this single country, China. China is buying up Africa. There's several countries on the continent in debt to China, up to their eyeballs. And China is stripping them of their natural resources that would enable them, enable them to develop and to be more civilized. But it's Europe's fault. You know, well, I I will say that especially, um, I've I've spoke I've spoken to four people personally that are from Africa. They're they've they've immigrated to the United States, or they're coming over here on a work visa or some other kind of whatever reason they're over here. Uh, two of them have been at seminaries. Um, uh, the, the other two were in professional positions that I worked alongside. And 
they talk about how the UN goes over there and destroys their economies. Uh, this was something I wasn't aware of. Um, but they, the, the quote-unquote generosity of the West, and we go over there and we dump off literal truckloads of food uh, to these poor tribes in the middle of nowhere, uh, and then we leave. These are the UN peacekeepers. And we just turn them into prime targets for other tribes to come in and attack them, shoot them up, steal the food, take slaves. Um, and th this has been a targeted thing that the UN does regularly in Africa. Um, I I'm not simping for Africa. Africa has had a lot of problems. They still have not pulled themselves out of the mire. But this is one of the things that the West does to them that is a legitimate complaint. Um, and uh, this isn't coming from the, colonialist, the, 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 the colonialists or the, the right. These are the bleeding heart leftists that are doing this to, to Africa. Um, Africa is not the only place they've done that to, by the way. But Africa is a prime target for it because, well, it's black people. Obviously, they need help. Uh, black farmers can't make any money over there because food's dropped off over there in these huge bundles. And the farmers can't make any money cultivating land. It's too much effort and for too little profit. That's just the reality of the situation. But this is the kind of thing that the Yankee does. This is the Yankee mindset. Oh, I'm going to go over there and fix it. And all you do is you make it worse. You know, about 10 times as worse as it should have been. Um, and the, 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 the furnace of, uh, the, the furnace of education over generations that generates a, a people that can, uh, live on a land and make it profitable is being stolen from them. And it's, and it's being done out of this, this guise of um, we're going to be good Christian people or we're going to be good human beings now because they don't like Christians. And we're going to go help them because helping is good. Um, and you end up destroying them. It's the same kind of thing with slavery, and it's the reason why I took the pains to talk about uh, the education of the slave. You know how big of a, a part of the 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 slave owner's relationship to the slave was education and discipline, because while a lot of those black people were disciplined and a lot of them were capable of of doing because they did after they were free. Uh, more often than not, the, the black slave was not capable of taking care of themselves, which is why almost all of them became sharecroppers. So, uh, you, you can't take the, the, the growth process, you can't take the adolescence out of the, the lifespan of the people and have them be successful you end up with what we have today with with 
you know, much of the, especially the urban blacks, where they they act insane, and they 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 burn places down, and the the equally insane liberal mind thinks the way to stop them from burning things down is to just give them reparations, right? Because that's going to fix it. They're not going to demand more after you give them $2 million a head. They're going to they're gonna stop at $2 million a head, and they're going to go their separate ways at peace, right? Uh, the liberal mind thinks that that's actually going to happen, and that's idiocy. I think that if, if slavery were held on to this day, should the South have been let alone or the South had won, I think it would be unjust. Uh, I don't I don't think that it would have lasted because it practically uh, it wasn't a feasible institution to, to last in perpetuity. No matter what was said, what was said legally or anything else, uh, a lot of the uh, reactions, the gut reactions, such as banning education for slaves and disarming slaves... I think those reactions would have would have made uh, the ultimate outcome of slavery in the United States worse, and in the South, it, it would have made it worse. Um, and you would have had to go back and re-educate a population. Um, and I, I've mentioned it on this podcast before. I mean, I, I see the Southern black man as my countryman. We've been side by side in the South for hundreds of years. We've grown together. We, we live in the same land. I don't have any animosity toward him whatsoever. Um, and and I, th I think that... Um, I, but, but regarding the, the, the subject of slavery, I think we do a big disservice to ourselves by entertaining the notion that we owe black slaves anything. Because, oh, well, slavery was the worst thing America's ever done. It's not. Not even close. The book I was thinking about is called The, the South Side View of Slavery. It's uh, written by Nehemiah Adams, a doctor who uh, suffered bad health, and he ended up taking an extended stay down in Georgia, I think, for three months. And while he was down there, he was down there at the height of Harriet Beecher Stowe's book, right? She's the one that wrote uh, Uncle Tom. Mm -hmm. right. Okay. Yeah. So he basically gave objective pushback to the narrative of that book, observing how, you know, slavery wasn't the way that it was portrayed at North and you know, by consequence, how it's portrayed today. Uh, those, you know, instances where slaves were treated right. So basically what he ended up doing was advocating for reform uh, of slavery and not necessarily it's a man's uh, it's, but the uh, he didn't advocate for emancipation. He just he actually advocated for reform that would make it more amenable to the growing culture in America and growing economic uh, or economic development. Um, so he, he he did give a, a favorable favorable assessment of it. Um, obviously, he saw some bad things, but. In comparison to Uncle Tom and other other stories about the South, it's just, it just simply wasn't true. Um, so anyway, that's a book that I would recommend. I read it so long ago, I can't hardly recall uh, much of it. I just I just remember 
a little bit. <laughs> so. Well, you bring up Uncle Tom's Cabin, and I think it's kind of interesting that, okay, so that, that made its way all the way to England, and it uh, it caused the, uh, oh, the Queen of England, I can't remember her name, to be like, oh, well, slavery is just horrible. You know, and the thing is, is it is a complete lie and fabrication. Like Harriet Beecher Stowe act like she was, you know, in the culture. She'd never seen a slave, you know, right. and she wrote an entire book that becomes this flipping war cry for the abolitionists. Right. Um, but, but anyways, um, I'm going to, I'm going to agree with a lot of stuff that uh, Lucas said earlier. Um, that, yeah, that, that there is a system of slavery that is unjust. And if we were still had, you know, slavery to this day, it would be inherently unjust. Um, you know, the, the, you know, Southern slavery, you know, 1860 slavery carried on to today. Uh, but, you know, just because there can be a sinful institution, there can be a sinful institution of marriage that does not negate all forms of marriage. In similar fashion, there's can be sinful forms of slavery that does not make all forms of slavery sinful. Um, and just because you know, like I'm not going to go out there and flip and advocate for slavery, but I will defend it because I mean, why, why, why not? At, at this point, flipping why not? You know, because. It, it would keep seceding these biblical grounds, and then we just let the liberals keep taking over. Like, if we're going to be conservators of the upcoming empire that we create, this Christian nationalist empire, we got to stop seeding ground. And, and what's a better hill to die on than saying, hey, slavery isn't inherently evil? I mean, that's the most polarizing issue that I, I think I can think of right now. You know, because even right. even the more conservative ones are like, yeah, we're not going to touch on that subject. No, screw it. Stick your stake in the ground right there and be like, no, God's word says this. Are you calling God's word a liar? You know, he doesn't right. condemn slavery outright. Why should we? Why should yeah. we kowtow and like, oh, oh, make this apologetic for scripture? Scripture needs no apologetic, okay? Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of that, – so, hey, once you start thinking about this issue and you, and you get out of this, this modernist context, it's kind of just like, screw it, you know? Like, well, just we send like, it. We act like it's a skeleton in the closet when we should just take ownership of it and explain it, explain it, objectively and in truth like i mean appeal to the bible appeal to the historical uh the historical narratives about it you know from our side and the reality of people on the ground who saw it firsthand and even even in the slave narratives people who experienced it firsthand i mean <coughs> it wasn't this and i'm sorry i know i'm supposed to i'm supposed to finish but like it wasn't this it wasn't like you said it was it, like you said, it wasn't the way that everyone else is saying that it was. It wasn't this this uh, omni-malevolent institution where everybody was like in balls and chains uh, being beaten to death. You know, there, 
there were instances more often than not where the slaves benefited from it. And who, you know, here's here's the last thing I'll say. Oh, I have friends. I have friends who are black. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't really know this. I'm not racist. I have when black you, friends. When you when you when you get to these kind of conversations with them, and you and you get to push them towards these things, I, I I make it clear I'm not scared to talk about this stuff. And I ask them, do you think you'd even exist here today if it wasn't for slavery? Do you think you'd have that beautiful child of yours, that beautiful wife? You know, the, the the two guys that I I'm friends with, the, the only two, right? Just two. Just two for you. You met your I'm, quota. Yeah. These guys are married. They have kids. They love their kids. They work full-time jobs. One of them's wife is a stay-at-home uh, mother. The other one, she works because her kids have grown up. You know, when you ask them about it, it's like, would you trade Would you trade your wife and kids who have never existed if it means black people having never been enslaved? Of course not. Of course not. I'm not saying it's a silver lining or that we should, you know, play it up as, as some sort of hagiographical account of, of the institution. But there's a reality there. There are good people who came from it. You know, and they exist in and around us. And it, of all people, the South has the South has the authority to speak on coexisting with black people, not the North. They were the first ones to implement black, black laws. They were the ones doing mass lynchings. They were the ones keeping them out of the, out of the businesses and keeping them on the street and really treating them no better than slaves. Most of you your, most of your lynchings were up North, not down South. Exactly. So it's like, let's, let's continue to buck the narrative. And you know what? I don't care if people on both sides of this get pissed off about it because I know there's some hardcore guys or, who, you know, they race realists who, you know, speak in a very condescending way about black people. That's neither here nor there. That's not that's not the point of this. And then you got people on the other side who who act like, you know, it was the most evil thing in the world. The South needs to just burn. You know, we need a modern-day Sherman to go through and just burn everything down. Well, guess what, man? Our our coexistence with, with, with black people down here precedes that of the North. We have greater experience living together. Uh, I mean, there's a, type of, there's a type of understanding that goes on a spectrum of resentment to, to love, right? Like, I love my friends. Right, but I understand that they need to understand I don't love all black people. Not not in the sense that I love them, you know, and not all black people love me. A matter of fact, I'm sure there's no shortage of black people who hate me. Right. So I mean it's just everything is so black and white, no pun intended, again, so presentist, and the 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 myth of perfectibility is at play here and I think we should just keep giving it, put, keep pushing it back against it. I think we need to take ownership of it and talk about it more. Not necessarily us, but Southerners. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I talk about it a lot in my personal contacts. Um, you know, I, I mentioned the the list of territories that were 
tacked on to the end of the Emancipation Proclamation, which were exceptions to the proclamation, and they just so happened to be all of the places where Lincoln's buddies were. <laughs> you know, uh, he, he essentially said, hey, look, I'm going to free the slaves in all the places that just don't want to submit to me. That's That's basically what that was. And nobody knows about that list of that that list of locations. Um, they just they act as if it's not there. Um, the people who know it's there act as if it's not there. Um, and then I think um, uh, Sacred Conviction would be another uh, a good book. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Can we um, can we the, the true author of that book now? I mean, it's pretty much known, isn't it? <laughs> I think so. Um, uh, I, I don't know. I'm a little hesitant because there was some dust up about it. But um, Sacred Conviction by Joseph J. Um, I hope he doesn't get offended at this, but uh, it was John Harris who wrote the book. Um, and he wrote it under a pseudonym because he was told that he would never get an academic position if he published that under his own name, which is true. He wouldn't have gotten an academic position. Yeah. Um, and it's a but, very well done book and he, you know, he gets yes. into the theological, the theological aspect, you know? Right. So that I've got a friend, uh, this is kind of an aside, uh, but it, it's relevant to her in, in terms of, well, you'll see. I have a friend of mine who's been visiting civil war sites lately. And he's been visiting Civil War sites. He's been reading Southern literature. He's been reading the accounts of slaves because slavery was a big deal. And he, he wanted to get on a call with me and he wanted to go over what was the Southern perspective of the Civil War. And as I started talking to him about how really it was a theological, cultural, and economic attack on the South – is, is what um, it's what was happening. It's why the South wanted to leave the Union. They wanted to destroy the South as a people. That was the goal. And there were there were several avenues of attack, but all to the same end. And as he's been reading the the uh, primary sources about you know regarding the civil war this is the conclusion that he was coming to independently of anything that i told him and he 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 commented the last time we spoke um i was going through um uh how the south was much was very big about family we were very big about lineage we were very big about um your ties to the land. And he started to connect the dots between the metropolitan emphasis of the North versus the rural emphasis of the South. And he's starting to connect the dots between that, the conflict in the 1860s, with today, where generally speaking, this is the conflict now. You have um, urbanite and suburbanite, college-educated 
metropolitan focused uh, people versus tradesmen, farmers, and generally speaking, rural focused individuals. This is your conflict in the United States right now. Um, and all of your quote-unquote lower-class guys, I call them tradesmen because they're not low-class in the sense of being, you know, just white trash or whatever. They're tradesmen. They don't they they haven't they don't have a college education. They've been doing something for decades, and that thing that they do has become their vocation. This is your conflict. It's the guy on the ground actually doing the work versus the intellectual elite who just wants to control everything. Um, that was the same kind of conflict. You know, you, you had very well-educated people in the South. You had an aristocracy in the South. But the aristocracy, the aristocracy was looking out for, they had a mind to protect and provide for the tradesmen and the everyman that, that worked underneath them. That was their family. That's who they were advocating for. And that includes the slaves. So, uh, it, that was, this was somebody outside of, you know, Southern circles. He's from the North. He's from, um, you know, his whole family is from the North. His whole mindset has just been what he learned in high school. And just by reading the primary sources, he is become increasingly sympathetic with the South and their their argument in in the in that era. And I see that almost every time. If they're not going to a college setting, people who read the primary sources become almost instantly uh, sympathetic to the to the South. Hey y'all, thanks for listening in on our podcast. If you like what you hear, please share and comment wherever you're listening to it. And check out our Gab page at Dixie Polis Podcast. If you want to contact us, please send an email to DixiePolis at ProtonMail.com or send us a message on Gab. If you like the music we're playing, hang out a little while and let the song finish. It's Wayfaring Stranger by Southern Raised, and you can listen to them on YouTube or go to their website at SouthernRaisedBluegrass.com. God bless y'all. Just